Welcome to Real Native Roots, Untold Stories, a podcast by Native Woman with Deep Roots. Ya'ate, this is Vicki. Welcome back again. I'm so excited that you all are here to join us. And I also hope that you all are really taking care of yourselves and your family, uh, especially during this time, practicing social distancing, and also just really self-care during the day when I'm working. I can see and also can really hear how tired people are. And so I really hope that you're doing what you need to do to replenish your energy and to just show up because a healthy body, healthy mind will keep you, you know, strong and, um, you know, avoid getting sick in any way. So thank you. I'm going to introduce our speaker. His name is Ben Sherman. I'm uh, really honored and actually humbled to have him say yes and to be a part of this episode. And I actually met Ben a couple of years, gosh, I want to say almost 10 years ago, maybe like eight, something like that. I should, I should do the math, but I met him and uh, when I met him, he was a trainer uh, for this uh, native organization and he actually is a citizen of the Oglala Lakota tribe and grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in Kyle, South Dakota uh, humble beginnings, grew up on the res, a uh, family of eight, uh, went to boarding school, and got his master's degree in business. Lots of life experiences in schooling and working with Native artists, and he's had about 25 plus years in, in the field or in the industry of tourism, and has sat on several boards, still sits on some of these uh, Native boards. He's a, definitely a Native leader. He has his own consulting business and uh, a founder and also a still uh, active um, member of the World Indigenous Tourism Alliance, which I had never heard of until I met Ben. And it's quite interesting what they do. They're really focusing on, it's like a global network and they're uh, this forum that really talks about indigenous experiences, um, really kind of seeing how things align universally with indigenous people about values. And so um, he's been really active in that and um, just a mover and shaker in that field. Uh, and then the last thing I really wanted to say about Ben and, and my interactions with him is that, you know, he's very, very humble, uh, wise, and I can underscore bold and highlight that he's very intentional and thoughtful about what he shares and about when he speaks and what he wants to offer to people. So you'll get that sense uh, as we get, get along. So welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Vicki. Good to see you. Good to hear from you. Yes. So, folks, I'll just let you know, Ben is my first Zoom virtual interview. We get to see each other, which is nice because we'll have a, a little dialogue. Besides what I told folks, a high level about who you are, please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Okay. There's not much more that I have to tell <laughs> after that great introduction, Vicki. <laughs> but, yes, there's always something I could tell about me and my background and what has shaped my years. And maybe I'll start with uh, going to school in Kyle, South Dakota, at the Little Loon Day School, mm -hmm. which is a Bureau of Indian Affairs school. 
And uh, I had uh, trouble through all my school years uh, because of my older sister. I'm the second of eight children. And my older sister, Maida, she was so smart and so perfect <laughs> in everything that she did that she set a standard that was not achievable by normal human beings. <laughs> and, and I'm more normal than Maida is. So that was my difficulty in going through schools from the Little Wound Day School through Pine Ridge High School. And I'm one of uh, four that did go to a boarding school in Pine Ridge. Uh, four years of boarding school for me and more of it for my sisters, three sisters, and uh, four younger brothers. Uh, they didn't go to much boarding school at all. So uh, it was quite an experience for me. Grade school, all uh, Indian boarding school, Indian uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs schools. And all through my elementary years, I never once had a Native American, an Indian teacher. Mm. So imagine what that is like. Uh, yeah. Going all through your first eight years of school with nothing but uh, perspectives from white people. Uh, mostly Scandinavians and Germans in that part of South Dakota. Yeah. So they were our teachers and principals all through the eighth grade, eighth grades of uh, grade school. And then uh, moving up into boarding school at uh, Pine Ridge uh, was a little bit different. We had a couple of uh, Native American teachers in, in, through my high school years. But again, it was rather sparse. Um, in my high school, the way it was organized back then is we did a half day of academic studies and a half day of vocational studies. There was no expectation that Indian children would go on to college from high school, or there was little expectation. So therefore, the policy was to teach a half day of vocational training. So by the time I got out of high school, I knew welding and drafting and carpentry and auto mechanics and my specialty was welding all different forms of welding really and that was good for me in a way and not good for me in another way because mm -hmm. i went i had such good grades in spite of my uh, older sister's influence i did have some good grades and so people made the decision for me that i should go to a difficult course of college. And so engineering was pretty much chosen for me coming out of high school. So, and they had to prepare me for it because I had a little preparation for a technical education like that. But anyway, I was convinced that that was best for me. So I went to the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. And I quickly found out that I was about one year behind all the other students in the school. And that was because I took uh, half-day academics all through high school, half-day vocational. Um, so I ended up taking pretty much one year of high school courses to make up for my lack of education from Pine Ridge. And that set me back quite a bit. Um, the good part of that, though, was I had real good jobs. 
my college years because I was a good welder and uh, drafting. So I was able to have good part-time jobs. So that was my uh, technical education. And um, I was also raising a young family at the time. So uh, I was, and I was working part-time night shift on missile sites. We were creating these large Titan missile sites throughout the Dakotas and, and from South Dakota, I went on to Idaho and California, state of Washington. So I got in a bit of traveling, but what that meant was I had to quit college before I got a degree, before I got an engineering degree. It just became too difficult. So I disappointed myself and I disappointed my mother as well because she had some expectations. Um, And she had really high standards for us regarding education, but she never pushed us real hard. And so I more or less promised her that I would continue my education however I could, even though I was traveling around the United States uh, making these missile sites. And that work finally ran out in California. So I got a job with an engineering title, even though I didn't have an engineering degree, because I had some good experience, fairly decent qualifications. So I was able to find good employment in the aerospace industry and uh, did real well there, got promotions. And eventually I got promoted to a job at Cape Kennedy launching spaceships, space rockets, and very highly technical. But keep in mind that that was in the days before computers. We were launching rockets into space before computers ever existed. And I'm exposing my age there, but that's okay. (laughs) So uh, I, I left there, Cape Kennedy, and went on to other technical jobs, eventually switching over to computers and telecommunications and working in that field for quite some time. And, and doing very well at it, always in management or supervisory positions in engineering. And I went on to get my engineering certification and my engineering license in the state of California. So I was an official engineer, even though I was not degreed. Again, uh, knowing that I wanted to complete my education somewhere or another because my, my good friend, he claimed that I had a, an, a problem. I had some kind of a lack lacking in me, my inability to get a degree. But eventually I did. As Vicki, as you mentioned here, I eventually went on and got a, a bachelor's and a master's in business management and kind of fulfilled my commitment to my mother, although very late in life. So uh, I left the uh, aerospace I left telecommunications, I left computers, and uh, decided that I was going to do private consulting. And the reason I left those corporations, and they were big corporations, was because there were no values there. And I was raised to believe that we needed to live by a set of values. So 
I left the, the corporations and never again returned. And to this day, I feel it was the right decision because uh, since that time, I have enjoyed working with tribes and tribal organizations and providing my contributions in, in the realm of my business experience that I had when I did work for corporations. I traveled for those corporations. I've been to uh, I've been to Europe and England and Scotland, wow. and not much further than that. Though so, gaining experience that was very valuable to my later years. So that's it, Vicky, for that part of it. Do uh, you have <laughs> another question to jump in with? Yes, but I, I actually just want to um, just. I just find it so interesting how the school back then was very um, broken in the sense of not broken in a bad way, but like it's how it was uh, academics and vocational and in essence in the end though, like the vocational piece helped you to sustain yourself while you were um, in school and, and you know, that younger part of your, your life to take care of yourself and the family and I just find that interesting because now I know the school system is all heavily based academically and, um, and there's the, we don't have as much vocation like the, um, welding and the cooking and the, um, financial education piece. And so, and I think now they're trying to, you know, weave that back in to, because it's life skills to some degree in, in those, um, areas. So I just wanted to just note that I thought that was interesting and I love how you really just kind of pull back together like your drive and your promise uh, what that's one of my values is about promising what you know keeping my word basically and that you made a promise to your mom and through life eventually at some point you 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 completed that you know um so thank you for sharing that I had no idea about that part of your life, Ben. I'm just like, wow, you, yeah, that was amazing to hear that part of your life. I was reading this article. You had, somebody had interviewed you, but what I loved about that article, it was a direct quote I'm taking from you. And the quote you had said is that people enjoy telling their story, which is a perfect quote for this podcast. And it made me think about, you know, you, you're right now, you've kind of shared with us your story up to this point and and I you know it really offers to sort of where you're at now and where you continue to go and explore and connecting with people and so tell us a little bit about you know this drive and this inspiration and sort of what do you feel you offer when you are doing the work that you're doing and you know um, on a national level even you know in the communities um, on the local level on different Indian reservations and and beyond because I know it's not just reservation work so I guess in essence the question is you know the medicine that you bring that life has brought you and given you that you've been able to cultivate and how have you continued to keep that inspiration as you go forward well, I would like to add a little bit more about my the days when I left high school and the early days of college. Was uh, we were beset by all kinds of racism in the border communities, such as Rapid City, South Dakota, Gordon, Nebraska, Rushville, Nebraska. Um, there was a very vivid sense that we were not wanted in those communities. And even when I was in college, I had trouble renting 
and I was turned away from restaurants more than once. But yet, uh, I I persisted. I didn't let that get me down, and I, I kept trying. And when I finally left the reservation, left the Rapid City and those communities, and explored on beyond into places that I told you about, Idaho and Washington, California, I found people who were interested in me for myself and who I was with no racism expressed at all. They were interested in me because I was an Indian. And so over time, I gradually changed my viewpoint about white people and developed some very good friendships for those during those days that have lasted for decades among the white people. Uh, count some of them as my, my oldest friends, even yet today. And that goes way back to post-college days. So that was a, a, a major, I guess, the realigning of my perspective back then, is that people were, for the most part, pretty good. And these pockets of racism around the border towns, um, you know, we still see it today. It surfaced again in, in recent years. And it's ugly and it's bad. But nevertheless, uh, we can work through that. I, at least I, I worked through it in, in my time. So I wanted to bring that out as well. When I was in high school, I went to, uh, I went to work in the uh, ranches and the farms in Nebraska and got away far away from those uh, border town communities that uh, there was this absence of racism. Again, more interest in me for what I was. And I have to credit uh, a couple of high school teachers for getting those jobs, those summertime jobs in Nebraska, and for supporting us uh, in getting out and meeting people off the reservation as much as possible. So that was that was a big turning point in my life, I would have to say. Mm. And from that time forward, I have spent a lot of time building bridges um, between uh, Native American communities and the mainstream culture, I guess, of America and Europe and other places in the world. So those early experiences benefited me all through life of, of building bridges. And I think you know how to do that yourself. If you, uh, you've gotten out quite a bit and you've stretched yourself and what you've tried to do. Um, and so you would know the benefit of uh, that change in perspective, knowing that you can get out and, and work without being hampered by these prohibitions that we put on ourselves uh, because of racism. Mm -hmm. We can work through that. Yes, I am in a complete agreement with you about working through that. And thank you for, for rewinding a little bit because I think that context is important about racism because still to this day, and you had even said like it's, it seems like it's coming, like it's shining light again about how people are behaving, especially now. And and I still hear in um, 
In fact, Rapid City, I'm not going to lie, I have a couple of colleagues out there who are having a hard time renting or it's available and all of a sudden it's not available or the price was at, you know, 700 a month and now it's a thousand a month. So there's still mm -hmm. sort of those practices happening. Um, the one thing you did say that I, I'm curious about is that you believe that we can work through this, you know, to, to you know, um, address, you know, this racism and this sort of ugliness that's is present. What are some things from what you've learned and how you've built friendships across, you know, in different um, places and experiences if you had, what are some ways that you feel that we can, we can, what we can do more of to um, work on that? Well, it, it's not easy and it takes time to work through those things. And, uh, but what you have to do is you have to carry a set of personal values with you wherever you go and whatever you do. And if you want people to trust you, if you want to have a reputation as a trustworthy person, uh, you've got to build that through uh, your experiences and your own performance through life. You got you to keep your words. You don't lie. You don't cheat. Uh, all those things. Um, go into building your reputation for uh, being a trustworthy person, for having integrity and honesty. And there, there are these other values too, uh, you know, compassion and generosity and so on. But the ones that really count as far as building relationships are concerned are, are primarily those ones of trustworthiness and integrity, honesty. And that's what helps you make your way in the larger world. And then when you get into the more personal relationships, and then that's where the, the other uh, character traits and values uh, come up, you know, where you, you have a giving nature, you sacrifice yourself, you have uh, a wisdom that you share with others. Um, all that makes you into a, a more complete, human being if you will and people recognize that but it's not instantaneous uh, Vicki it, it just takes time to get there yeah and you know I, I you know I think that from your different encounterance of individuals and racism like um, from different countries and has shown you um shown you that and then also giving you opportunity to practice some of those values and you know that's what stretches us and so i feel like as i was listening to you i'm like oh is that ben's medicine is this bridge builder you know he's a bridge builder um between people and it'd be different types of people and different cultures of helping to understand each other and and build this, try to build, you know, this level of seeing each other um, for who we are and for for what we all bring and what we offer. You can yeah. be, you can underscore that, or maybe there's something else that you want to emphasize in terms of what you have been bringing to the spaces that you come in. Well, I, I've been influenced greatly, and I mentioned my mother. Uh, there was another influence, uh, the great grandmother that I did not know but she went to Carlisle boarding school when she was 13 years old and spent a few years back there. And 
took great courage for her to do that. Um, she decided on her own that she wanted the adventure of going away and, and having the experience. And, you know, this was just a, three short years after the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Uh, and so the, uh, the government decided that they would uh, continue the war against the tribes, but through the children and take the children and put them in boarding schools and make white people out of them with brown skins. And that's what they attempted to do with my great-grandmother, and I had others in my family as well. But they didn't succeed um, with my great-grandmother. She went through her years there in Carlisle and, and learned more about the ways of the larger world and returned to the reservation and made her family. She didn't lose her, her ways and her culture. Um, but some did. Some Indian kids did. And some Indian kids died, unfortunately, at boarding school as well. But she made it through Carlisle and went back home and and raised um, my grandfather and my great aunts. And eventually uh, I came along. But she had gone. She was gone by then. But by then, I had another inspiration in my life, and that was my mother. And what an inspiration she has been. And we talk about values of humility and generosity and courage and and never ever lying and being just as trustworthy as possible all those things were my mother and you know she was the real human being and in our upbringing in our environment that was very difficult uh, we we had a lot of alcohol and we had poverty very poor in the way we lived but yet she she kept her dignity through all that. And when time came, when the time came when my father was uh, crippled up with injuries and illness, she stepped up and took care of the family. She got a job at the same school where I went to the grade school as a cook. And while she was working as a cook, the school decided that they needed a teacher in kindergarten and first to help the children transition into an English-speaking environment. Because back then, most of the children spoke Lakota coming off the reservation. And my mother was fluent. So she went and taught kindergarten and phrase first for a few years, accompanied by my youngest brother, who was three years old at the start of that. So we always teased him because he spent three years in kindergarten, you know. <laughs> before he graduated from kindergarten. But anyway, uh, my, my mother did so well, and she only had a high school education, by the way. She did so well that the Bureau of Indian Affairs authorities convinced her that she should go to college and get some teaching credentials, which she did. She took four children with her, and she went away to college. She got all of her credentials and eventually returned to the reservation and taught the little ones for the rest of her teaching career until she retired. And one of the things that she did when she graduated from high school, she was at a boarding school as well, she decided that she wanted to go to school in Santa Fe because she had heard that there was good artist training in 
at the Santa Fe Indian School, so she applied. And it took a year for them to process her application because they were not accustomed to taking people in from that far north, up in South Dakota. But she eventually got in, and so she spent time learning art at the Santa Fe Indian School. And so <clears throat> throughout her teaching career, she was able to integrate art into all of her teachings, one way or another. <clears throat> she herself was an artist, a painter, a writer, poet, a singer. So we know she herself had some real artistic uh, skills, I guess you would say, about her. So she was my <clears throat> inspiration as well, and a good one at that. Um, she did a lot of teaching, and she, she passed away 13 years ago. And But there were people on the reservation who still remembered her and still called her Mrs. Sherman from her teaching days. And these are adults, you know, by the time she passed away. Yeah. So um, any questions at this point? Uh, well, it led me to think, um, thank you for sharing about your grandmother and your mom and how they've inspired you. It sounds like um, in your gene, there's definitely a, a gene of adventure to explore because <laughs> <laughs> your great grandmother uh, ready to go and travel and you've been traveling almost your whole life in different places. Um, but going back to, um, you know, how you were raised and what, you know, I think about a lot of our families um, and, you know, growing up on the res. I mean, I, I grew up humbly as well, like no running water, uh, grew up in a Hogan, in a camper, out in the mountains and in a trailer my whole life until I think I'm one of the first homeowners in my family. Anyway, the point I'm getting at with this is this poverty, the feeling, you know, seeing poverty, but also seeing how poverty uh, to some degree, you know, is a ripple effect and, you know, the other sort of um, hardship, um, alcoholism, maybe abuse. And, you know, when you see that in, in, in our, some of our families and relatives and friends grow up in that, you know, uh, how, do, how does one stay inspired to keep being persistent, to keep finding this drive to, you know, pull yourself out of that and, just, you know, I, I guess I would want to hear from you as you maybe tell others who might be in those, uh, in that place now, who are, who are still trying to pull themselves in that way to keep moving forward, you know, what would you say to those folks? Well, I guess anybody. Of, uh, yeah, and, and in my own family, we have had some very difficult uh, times. I have lost three of my children the years and most of that is because of the difficulty in their upbringing um, I look at my grandchildren right now and some of them are having their troubles you know with substance abuse Pine Ridge is a very difficult place to live because of all those things that you just mentioned um, all the social issues that come with poverty Pine Ridge has them so I worry about my grandchildren and all, all that we can do is try to provide an example, try to encourage them, 
um, I have one granddaughter who is doing just great. She's in her third year of university now and will go on to do good things. But she's kind of exceptional uh, for people who come out of uh, that environment. Um, part of my inspiration, too, is, is the negative things, the injustice that I see and inequality, the racism. Uh, that inspires me to keep keep trying try harder, not only with my own family, but with indigenous people throughout the world, because we're not in this alone. We have, a, you know, there are millions that are facing the same or similar issues around the world. And those are the people that, uh, in my work, I try to support. So it's odd that these negative things can provide inspiration to me, but they do. Yeah. They keep me going. I love that. I love the the perspective on that and and really seeing those experiences as opportunities to to help. And as you've traveled and met different indigenous communities um, and individuals, what are things that maybe they're doing that maybe we could um, offer here in some of the communities in the mainlands about inspiring and you know, I, I'm just curious if, if they're doing anything different than what we've been trying to do, you know, and, and you know. Think- well, ma- many of these indigenous people that, that we see around the world uh, are much closer to their natural environment, they're much closer to Pachamama, Mother Nature. And part of the problems that we have in our own Indian communities uh, on the reservations in the U.S. is we are drifting away from that drifting more into the the metropolitan areas, drifting into technologies that keep us away from the natural environment. And so if if I want to mention another inspiration, it's because of the natural world. Getting out into it as often as possible and smelling and seeing and feeling and hearing uh, the natural world and keeping that connection and being aware of the threats to nature as well as the threats to indigenous people. Um, Because our work, the work that I do in tourism has as much emphasis on the natural world as it does on the indigenous communities. And these indigenous people out there, they very often have a lot greater connection to the natural world than we in the United States do. And thinking specifically of uh, the people in in South America, so many of the indigenous people down there in the Amazon and in the Andes, <clears throat> the traditional farmers that go back, you know, many, many thousands of years, still farming the way they always did. Uh, the people in the forests and along the rivers, uh, still living by traditional means. And... Uh, you know, I've been through this first people's fund. I've been up in Alaska a number of times out into the uh, into the tundra, into the, the cold and remote places of Alaska. And they are still living subsistence economies up there, too, the indigenous people. And, it, and it's good. They're, I wouldn't say it's easy at all, but it's, it's good for them. And it's a source of inspiration, too. I think people getting out into nature as much as possible. 
what I've noticed, <laughs> I can tell you, before before the situation that we're in now, um, I I would say I didn't really go out as much. The only time I would go out is as I commute to, to get in the car to go to the airport and then to the hotel and then back, right? And because of where we're at now, I actually have been going out every day, like intentionally, like going out breathing the fresh air, just really listening to the birds and hearing the trees. It's a whole different level of connecting that I hadn't been really practicing before, you know, and, and it offers this calmness. And sometimes if you're quiet enough, you get ideas, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you get, you get the answer that you need. Um, It's because I totally agree where we've gotten so disconnected and I think a lot of folks, um, I just want to, I'm like, you know, I grew, I'm a seventies baby. I think folks from that era back, um, were probably much more, um, you know, in tune with like being out because we, like most of us didn't have running water or running electricity. So you had to take mm-hmm. care of yourself in a different way. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that we, we start to do that more. Everybody starts to really connect with nature more because it is really healing and it is really it's forgiving too to some degree I feel like you know when you're in that space um so I know that we're coming to time and I really just want to thank you for sharing your story sharing with us uh, what inspires you what has kept you to move forward and what you're learning from different places that you've been any any final words of wisdom, thoughts that you want to share to our listeners of, you know, um, how they continue to, you know, carry themselves in this journey? Well, I have noticed through the years that uh, a lot of natives, a lot of indigenous people are introverts. And Vicki, you and I have talked about this before, about introversion. Um, you can be a success in life and still be an introvert. You can have good relationships with people and still be an introvert. Um, introverts, in a way, are, are a bit different. We are we tend not to be overbearing, and to me, that's a positive. You can see your way through situations with people by not being overbearing. You can be an introvert and still work successfully with people. We have our ways about us as introverts that we have to get away from that once in a while and and recharge our batteries a little bit different than most people. But nevertheless, even as uh, an introvert, as an indigenous person, uh, we can still make it in the world. There are ways to do that. I am never overbearing. I'm more like my mother in that regard. And but sometimes the, the the quieter I get, the more that people listen. And I, that's the way I enjoy being. Um, but sometimes I'm so quiet that people ignore me, which very often is all right, too. <laughs> so that's my last word. You know, uh, uh, introversion is not necessarily a negative thing. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who <laughs> don't seem like an introvert, but they really are, you know, that they're on when they need to be on. And that I love, though, the what you had said about quietness and silence. Uh, 
when I'm facilitating and training sometimes, I, I actually just really pause and just wait for whoever needs to, to show up, who wants to say something. And I find that some folks who are not used to that, they get so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're really uncomfortable with that pause and that silence. And just, a, it's almost like, you know, I, I, lo- I love it because I feel like it's allowing this mari- uh, it to marinate the conversation, the question to marinate. So they can really be thoughtful about how they come out and respond to that. And I think that is powerful. It is powerful. And I, I love how you also said that we have to recognize, though, when to use that. There's a time to use that uh, so that people will listen and, and know that when it, is, when it is a little too quiet and people um, are ignoring, and when they're ignoring, then that's when we need to kind of step up in a different way. So using silence um, can be very powerful. Yep. So anything else? You know, in, in earlier times in, in my culture, uh, people uh, didn't boast or they weren't supposed to boast. I'm sure there were some that did brag about themselves and their achievements, deeds, good deeds. And we had a practice in my culture where there was always somebody who spoke for you. If you had some deeds that should be recognized by the community, there was always somebody that would stand up for you and speak for you. And that was kind of a way of not having to boast about your achievements. Uh, You can can do good things and allow those who recognize those good things to stand up for you and to speak for you. Mm. And I thought, I think that was a good cultural practice. Yes, I still think, I, I still think that's valid. I really do. And it, it feels like it's even more meaningful, especially when you don't expect it, when someone speaks on behalf of you or of you, and you don't hear it sometimes. But yeah, I think that's very powerful. It is. Yeah. Thank you so and much. Thank you, Vicki, for having me. I, can't I, I really it. I really enjoyed this because I got to know you on, in a whole nother way. Um, I just find that your life journey was very interesting and we could probably talk a lot more because <laughs> I had other <laughs> questions about like you know coming from the res and then being out in California and I mean that's different cultures but your your life experience definitely is very intriguing we didn't really get to talk about um the other pieces but maybe another time so I thank you right. again for your time I appreciate it um take care of yourself okay have a great time Vicki Thank you.